Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Young adults, how we doing tonight? Everybody find your way back to your seats. Guys, I only got 30 to 35 minutes, so we got to get this thing rolling. First of all, if you guys are new here tonight, welcome to Young Adults. Can we get a yell for the newcomers? We are excited. We're glad that you're here. Uh, Young Adults has actually been able to walk through the book of Philippians, and so this week we are setting up camp in Philippians 3. So if you have your Bibles, we are grateful that you have your Bibles. Take them out. And if you got your phones, go ahead and open up that version app or whatever it is that you use, and let's get this thing going. Hey, I have a big question for you guys today. What makes something valuable? So, we, so we're asking this question, what gives something value? What gives something worth? And I know you're like, Andrew, that's a super broad question. It is. So let's kind of narrow it down. Uh, let's, let's find out really what makes a real diamond valuable as opposed to a fake diamond. And this is pretty relevant because it is engagement season. Am I right? Raise your hand specifically your left if you've been, I don't know, proposed to in the last month. Lainey gave me $35 for this intro. So let's give a round of applause for Aaron and Lainey. Uh, I expect that to be cash apt to me, but at least by the end of this message. No, but we're going to be talking what makes a diamond real versus a diamond fake. So we're going to be doing a little bit of an experiment today. Uh, If you guys are sitting next to someone, then you can play. Is everyone sitting next to someone? Sweet. Let's look at the screen. One of these two is real. One of these is fake. And let me just give you some, some statistics right here. Uh, according to the Cape Town Diamond Museum, they're legit, they sound legit to me, if a diamond is synthetic, which means that it was fake and made in a lab, it can cost anywhere from 40 to 50% less than a real diamond. Laney, you better be looking at your hand right now. We're, we're going to figure something out. You can figure out through a series of tests if your diamond is real or if it is fake. So you and the person next to you, place your bets right now. Who's got the diamond on the left and who's got the diamond on the right? Are we ready? Three, two, one. Let's reveal those prices. Left is the real one and the right is the fake. And look at this price difference. We got 14,700 as opposed to 3,900. Now, both of those are out of my price range, and I know that only applies to one person here tonight, but I just thought it should be said. Um, You're probably not going to get one of those. But when we look at this, what really distinguishes the difference between a real diamond and a fake diamond is both of them require a step-by-step process that involves carbon, heat, and pressure. And so when you're making them in a lab, as opposed to when you find them in nature, they they both require carbon, heat, and pressure. But the difference is, is that for a synthetic diamond, you have to use graphite, which is pencil lead. That's kind of wild, huh? Start saving your pencils up. Maybe you can get something. 
I don't know. But what the difference here, what makes it not a real diamond is actually you compromise the purity of the diamond. See, when you're making it from graphite, the reason it's not as valuable as the real diamond is because there's traces of metal all throughout the diamond. So it's not pure. So when you compromise the purity of the diamond, it loses its value. And so that's why you're able to maybe purchase one that looks pretty nice, but, but when it comes down to it, it's, it's not worth really anything compared to the real diamond. So when you compromise its purity, really what you're doing is compromising its value. And when we dive into Philippians 3 today, this is pretty much what Paul is addressing is there's these guys named Judaizers who call themselves Christians, but what they come to preach to the people is for these new Gentiles, so anybody who's not a Jew, that are trying to become a believer in Jesus, they're like, yes, you can become a believer in Jesus, but you also have to follow these rules in order for you to be accepted. And so Paul had a huge issue with this. Why did he have a huge issue with this? Because when you compromise the purity of the gospel, it loses all its value. So before we get into the text tonight, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we come before you, Lord, eager to learn from your word. Lord, we know that there is power in your gospel, that there is power for uh, salvation, Lord, but there is oftentimes people try and tell us there's certain things that we need to do in order to achieve it. Lord, or, or maybe there's somebody here tonight, um, Lord, and I know I've had to deal with things in my own heart, Lord, where I'm living as if it requires something more. So God, I pray that as we dive into your scriptures, you would open up our eyes to the truth of what you have tonight. Lord, we pray that tonight would be yours, uh, Lord, and that we would really consider, uh, Lord, what matters, what really matters in this life. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So the overarching question for tonight is what really matters? Like what really counts? Because Paul seems to have an issue with a lot of the comments that these Judaizers are making. And he's saying, no, you're not getting it. You, you cannot bring something to the table and then think that that is righteousness and that will bring you to God. He's like, that's, that's not what counts. So what actually counts here? Well, let's start in verse one. If you got your Bibles, open up to Philippians three. We're gonna start in verse one. We're gonna be walking through this verse by verse so that we can really get an understanding of what, what Paul is talking about here. So in verse one, it says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write these things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. So what do we see here? There's two distinctions that really we need to understand in this verse before we move on to what it is that Paul's gonna be talking about. The first thing is, as he says, finally. Now this isn't to um, kind of project the, the thought that he's concluding his letter. We see we have two more chapters left, so that'd be kind of awkward. What he's really saying here is we are gonna begin a new section. So if you've been here for the past couple of weeks as we've been walking through uh, the first and second chapters of Philippians, there have been some amazing, amazing themes that we see about humility. Uh, we're talking about what it means to be a light bearer. All of these things uh, were talked about in chapters one and two. But now when Paul says, finally, this is a transition to a new section. So we know we're dealing with something uh, that is closely related but is new. And Paul, really in the second half of this verse, is he saying, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it is actually uh, for you, it is safe. What Paul is saying here is that 
It is a joy for him to write again to you how important it is to keep the gospel strictly the gospel. Because if we get it wrong, it affects everything. If we compromise the gospel and what it means to be saved by uh, professing your faith in Christ alone, nothing else, that if we compromise that, that's a serious danger. And how serious is it? Don't worry, guys, I have another game for us to play here today. So on the screen, we have two substances. Both are legal, I promise. What you are gonna do with your partner, maybe you pick a new partner this time. Maybe you're sitting to the person's left and you're like, man, I got rejected. Well, pick them this time. What you're gonna do is pick one of these substances, just for the sake of example, to consume you and your friend. So go ahead and decide with the person next to you, which one are you going to consume? So what we see is this is very important. Your decision needs to be very clear. For one of these things, you guys wanna hear the results of consuming one of these things. One of them is kidney failure. One of them is gonna be an inflammation of the lungs, the stomach lining, the intestines, also an inflammation of the throat. It even gets to the point where it reduces your blood, the ability for it to bring oxygen to the vital organs in your body, such as your brain, AKA you dead. So you eat one of these, you're dead. The other one you might have seen uh, become a popular meme. Mr. Salt guy, whatever his name is. One of these is salt. The other one is potassium nitrate. Potassium nitrate is the one that kills you. So you guys ready? Only half of us are living tonight. Three, two, one. Who survived? Congratulations. See, for this, both of them appear to be similar but consumption of one of them is like, oh, I just need a glass of water. Consumption of the other one is like, oh, I need a coffin. Like there's two different potential outcomes. They both appear to be harmless, but one of them is actually leading to death. So this is similar to what Paul is dealing with here. He is writing for their safety because one of these things, namely the thing the Judaizers are preaching, leads to death, no salvation. No, you cannot know Christ through it. The other one leads to life. So even more important than in earthly consequence is our eternity is on the line. To believe that the gospel, to believe that salvation requires you to bring your works to the table will lead to death. But to have faith in Christ and in Christ alone is what leads to life. So if you uh, open up your Bible again, we're gonna read verse two. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Paul is using very strong language here. And if you do some more digging in the text, you actually find that there's a, a interesting ironic pun with the word dogs. Um, but what we're gonna be focusing on tonight is Paul is using such harsh language to grab the attention of the reader and to grab the attention of the listener. Because basically what he's saying is what we just illustrated with the potassium nitrate and with the sodium chloride 
is that if you do not pay attention, if you believe the wrong thing, it will lead to death. So Paul uses such harsh language to get our attention here. So let's read in verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now some things we gotta cover. What in the world, why does Paul even reference circumcision? Where in the world did that come from? See, circumcision uh, in our culture, in our day and age, really doesn't hold any um, cultural or spiritual value to us. But in the Old Testament, particularly Genesis chapter 17, is when God um, kind of introduces this covenant with his people. What circumcision said, uh, it wasn't just a physical thing that happened to you, uh, namely men, um, but what it actually did was it set you apart as God's people. Is, is it was through this covenant that God made it known throughout all of the nations that Israel was different and they were gonna receive God's promises. And so the issue that we're dealing with here, I talked about that the Judaizers were saying, you have to add something to faith in Jesus in order to be saved. The thing that they're adding is circumcision. So for the Greeks, they weren't Jewish. So that wasn't something that was done to them when they were a child. But what the Judaizers are saying is if you want to be saved, if you want to have a relationship with God, and if you want to be in heaven one day and forgiven of your sin, then what has to happen is you have to be part of Israel's race and you have to get circumcised. This is a huge issue because what the Judaizers are doing is they're implementing the work of man as a means to try and achieve salvation. And so what Paul is really uh, illustrating us for us here is that the Judaizers have abandoned boasting in the Lord for boasting in the flesh. So it has no longer become the glory of God who saved us apart from our works, but it's now, look what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. So now that I have this thing figured out, then when I stand before God, he'll say, oh, dude, well done. You did great. Come on into heaven. And Paul is saying, that's not how it works. It is not about what you do. And especially uh, to the Judaizers, he's saying circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. And so we see uh, going on and into verse four, Paul writes, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what we see right here is this is Paul's clapback. This is Paul's response. He's saying, oh, you wanna play this game, Judaizers, saying that the Gentiles can't get salvation because of something that they didn't do, that you're trying to provide this, this human righteousness to look right before God by circumcision. He's like, you wanna play that game? Oh, I'll play that game and I'll win that game. So you can kind of hear this um, prideful talk from Paul as he's kind of, fleshing out all of the things that he has achieved by himself. All of these things that Paul are, is gonna describe is what he valued before he came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So 
One way that we might explain it is we're saying, here are all of uh, Paul's uh, status, cultural uh, achievements, all of these things that Paul did in order to kind of show his human righteousness. But since we're young adults, what we're going to call it is Paul's flexes. Paul had a few flexes that he was going to be showing the Judaizers uh, to show that he was better than what they had to offer. If you're sitting in the audience, you're like, what in the world is a flex? Basically, it's something that you got that you know is good and you're going to show it off to somebody else. So the opposite of that would be if I were to show you my bank account. That is not a flex. That's a cry for help. Paul's got a few flexes that he's going to show Um, But really what we see before Paul moves in to these things that he's going to be showing the Judaizers is we notice that flesh, although it was exclusively meaning circumcision in the verses prior, has now been opened up to mean any type of human righteousness or human achievement that we're going to try and use Uh, to justify ourselves. We'll read verse four again. It says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, so circumcision, but then it transitions into, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more or I more so. He's saying a human achievement is no longer just circumcision, but I'll tell you all the things that I've done that you would actually be wowed over. You think you're good because you're circumcised. Well, let me raise the bar for you and show you everything that I've achieved. And so we're gonna be taking a look at Paul's seven flexes. I wonder if he ever thought that's how it would be described. But then we move on to our first point of the night. And it's gonna be fleshed out as Paul really wraps up after all of his flexes is what he's gonna be illustrating for us is our point for tonight is that human achievement counts for nothing. Human achievement is a dead end that offers no life and does not result in communion with Christ. Or in other words, it does not result in a relationship with God. Human achievements count for nothing. So let's read verse five. The first flex, he says, circumcised on the eighth Day. Now, this is pretty interesting. We'll we'll have a list of all of Paul's flexes for you soon. But the first one, what he's saying, is actually a reference back to Genesis uh, chapter 17. One of the strict uh, implementations of this new covenant of circumcision was that they would the kids would be circumcised any time before the eighth day. And so Paul's saying, check that off the list. And some of you guys, he's talking to the Judaizers, some of you guys didn't even get circumcised on before the eighth day. But I did that, so I checked that off my list. And then he goes on to his next flex uh, in verse five. He says, and I was of the people of Israel or of the stock of Israel. So while this, or why this holds so much weight is because essentially what the Judaizers were trying to do was to get the Gentiles to become of Israel's race by being circumcised. So Paul is kind of uh, addressing two of the main things that they're trying to do. So Paul is pretty much putting himself on their level at this point and saying, I've already done that. And so then we move on to his next flex. Paul says in, in verse five, he says, and I was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now, on first glance, you're like, okay, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Is the tribe of Benjamin was specifically a favored tribe that is described in Deuteronomy as one that God namely calls out that he loves. And it is actually from this tribe that Paul actually received his name. It was Saul before Paul, and that was modeled after King Saul. So these are all the kind of interesting things that Paul could claim about himself that none of the other Judaizers could claim. And not only that, but this was the tribe that was blessed by Moses. Now Moses and Abraham are kind of the two big head honchos of the Jewish faith. And so what Paul is making a point of here is saying, and the tribe that I'm from, blessed by Moses. So now Paul is really starting to push ahead from the Judaizers because these aren't things that all of them could say. And then we move on to the next one. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now this uh, points back to all of the Judaizers who were trying to get the Gentiles to become Hebrew in order to be saved. And Paul, again, he's saying, man, check that off the list. So at this point, all the Judaizers are like, okay, we, we get it, Paul, that's enough. But thankfully, Paul gives just a little bit more just to really drive that nail into the coffin. And then he says, concerning the law of Pharisee. See, Paul, before he came to Christ, was this thing that was called a Pharisee. Now, what we know about that is that they were kind of set apart from the common people. Is that if you really wanted to be what's what in the world of religion, if you were a Pharisee, then you were highly regarded. That means you had extra devotion to uh, learning the Torah, which is the, the first books of our Bible, first five. Is that before the age of 15, if you were going through this Pharisaical school, you were to have books one through five memorized. That's pretty wild. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, I, I wasn't even considered and grouped in with the common people. I was a Pharisee. I was set apart. I knew the word like nobody else. And then we move on to his next flex. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As he was not only uh, zealous, he was not only passionate, but he was radical. He was so committed to the Jewish faith that he actually went out of his way to imprison and even kill Christians. At this point, the Judaizers are like, all right, we, we've never been that passionate. We get it, just stop there. And Paul's like, I'm almost done, just wait. And as to righteousness in the law, he says, blameless. Now, this isn't to say uh, that a righteousness before God, that's why he qualifies it. He says, as to righteousness in the law. So what does that mean? Is that there's a total, when, when you uh, look at the explicit commandments in the Old Testament, and then the Jewish interpretation of those commandments is we come out with over 600 different things that they had to keep pertaining to food, what you could eat, what you couldn't, drink, what you could drink, what you couldn't, uh, holidays or observances. All of these things were, Paul was basically saying, all of those things that you say that I have to keep, I kept them. He was saying, when it comes to the law, I was perfect. I kept all of the things that were required to keep. And now at this point, the Judaizers are like, okay, we get it, man. We get it. You can stop. 
But Paul's point here was to show them, you think that you offer something good. I've done that and more. And what's super cool is Paul just doesn't just flex this to flex it. He actually, I'll just read it. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read it. In verse six, we'll read the rest of this and then move on to really what Paul's getting at. It says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul separates himself from all the others. And he's saying, you know who's who? I am. Here's a list of all the things that I've done where probably 70% of the things you haven't even done. And then what does he say? All of those things that would make me look good and righteous in front of people, I count them all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Paul is showing here. It's not about the righteousness you bring to the table. It's not about the works that you do. Because when you know Christ, all of that is worthless anyway. So then let's read verse nine. And being found in him, not having the righteousness of my own. Some translations say my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul really lays it out here. It is about a faith in God that brings about this fellowship with Christ. It's not about the things that you do because you can't live a life of, of just doing good things in your eyes and think that at the end of it all, you can present them to God and say, look, I'm good enough to get in. That's not righteousness. That's you attempting to be morally good in order to try and appease God as if all of the things that you've done good outweigh the bad. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, you were a sinner, I was a sinner, Paul was a sinner. He lays that out for us. It was nothing that he did, but he had an encounter with Christ. He put his faith in the work of Christ of what Christ did on the cross, and through that faith alone, he was saved. It's not about what you do. When we, when we hear the word righteousness, what we really should be thinking is, is that of a righteous judge. Is that if somebody comes in who has committed a vast amount of crimes, and they sit before a righteous judge, is the judge righteous if he convicts him of his crime, or if he just lets him free? A righteous and just judge will convict him. What Paul is really showing is that we are all the criminals. We all come into the court and we are guilty of sin after sin after sin. And for us to say, but look what I did good. It's not about that. It's that we are sinful. We're imperfect. We're separated from God. And how God is still just in giving us love is that Christ paid the price for our crime. That Christ took on the wrath that you deserved, that I deserved, that Paul deserved. And through a faith in Jesus Christ alone, you can be saved. To be rich in Christ is everything. 
We see human achievement, it counts for nothing. We're sinful, we're separated from God. But to be rich in Christ, to bring all those things before Christ, before the Lord, and say they mean nothing, to then gain Christ means everything. And you'll see Paul talk about that in just a a few verses. I'm gonna move on to verses 10 and 11. He says here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 10, the fourth word there is to know. What we know here is that is a relational knowing. A lot of us here, how many of you guys know uh, the Harry Styles album that just came out? Any Harry Styles fans in the audience? Uh, oh, come on. So do you, uh, I guess I'll ask you, do you, do you know, you know Harry Styles, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you have lunch with Harry Styles today? Did you hit him up on the phone? Did you text him? Okay, so we know, don't worry, I'm in the same boat. I'm with you. I wish I did, but I didn't. We know of Harry Styles, but we don't know him. What Paul is saying here is maybe where some of us are here, sitting here tonight, this is where we're at. We know Jesus. We know God. We know about him is really what we mean, but we don't know him relationally. This word to know, this verb to know, is described as how a father knows his son, how a father knows his daughter, how a husband knows his wife, how siblings know each other. This is a relational knowing. Are you here tonight? Maybe, maybe you're looking for something. Something in your week, something in your month has happened and you face devastation. Maybe you have friends that brought you here tonight. And you're like, I don't, I don't know what it means. They say they know God, and I feel like I know God. The difference is they know him like a father. That's what Paul's talking about here is this relational knowing. And what's beautiful here is in verse 10, we see both and I'll, I'll tease out these words, we see both, or all three, justification, sanctification, and a future glory. Is that when we come to know Christ relationally, we are forgiven of our sins, not because we're offering something to try and win the, the pleasure of God, but by recognizing that we're sinful and coming before the Lord and saying, there were things that I thought would gain me righteousness. I thought maybe how many times I went to church, maybe how many times I mentioned the word Bible or mentioned Jesus, or or maybe how many times I came to young adults. Those are all things that we're trying to do to offer to God as righteousness. But Paul's saying here is that that leads to death. To know God, to be saved, to have a relationship with Jesus comes with faith in Christ and in Christ alone. So if you guys would bow your heads with me.